Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Alex, and welcome back to the On Air podcast. Dan, I thought of you this weekend, just gone. Oh, you did? How, how flattering. It wasn't related to the podcast, and also I shouldn't have to think of you until, of course, <laughs> podcast recording day, uh, which is the day before the, the episode drops. But I thought of you because I got this in my inbox. I'm going to read it to you now. It says, great news, Lufthansa has become the latest airline to introduce oat milk across all of its flights. Yeah. And on Friday, and I was like, wow, that guy lobbied hard. <laughs> My Angelino-ness, it worked again. I saw that and I was like, that's impressive, but it also highlights how insane it is. I think most people I know, people who eat anything, they don't have any specific diet, most people I know prefer non-dairy milk nowadays. So the fact that yeah. so many airlines still don't offer it, even in premium cabins, is is so behind the times. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I looked, I wanted to see the list of airlines that have copied it, and Air Canada recently ensured that it's that they've got a variety of options. Yep. Cathay Pacific is working on a whole new plant-based menu. It's That's definitely amazing. a trend that, that is so, you know, fast-moving globally that aviation, of course, has no choice but to play catch-up now. Yeah. But it's good. And, I mean, I don't, I think you know anyway, I don't, I don't, drink milk anyway but if i had to have it in anything it would be oat or almond so yeah nice. this is pretty uh, <laughs> nice development yeah i just have uh, to give a shout to emirates one thing i really appreciate is that they offer multiple plant-based milks so you can actually choose what you want so it's you know mm. it's the small touches yeah. that make you feel like an airline is a bit more with the times rather than yeah. uh falling behind. Before we discuss anything else, I just want to follow up on something from last week because we mentioned that if you review the podcast and if you follow the podcast, you might be eligible for some prizes. So basically, if you review this podcast on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can leave a review. Then send us a screenshot of your review and the fact that you follow the podcast. So whatever platform it's on, a screenshot of the review and the follow to our Instagrams that can be at AlexLHR or at the Nonstop Dan, you will be entered to win some amazing aviation-related prizes. For example, several first-class amenity kits. So it can be Lufthansa, Emirates, Etihad amenity kits coming your way for free just for following and leaving a review. How were your yeah. travels this week? What were you up to? Well, I just left Turkey yesterday. I had the most amazing week with my mom and my aunt and Oscar. Turkey is just one of those countries that I feel everyone needs to visit because the people, even in the most touristy places, but of course, especially yeah. not in the touristy places, are so hospitable. My mom and my aunt coming from Sweden, they're not really used to people being overly nice. So at first they called me and they said, Dan, Everyone is trying to scam us. Everyone wants something from us here because they're being so nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have to say, no, <laughs> this is just what people are like in some countries. <laughs> Wait, so wh which city were you in? Uh, so we traveled all around. We went to Fethiye, which is mm. like a beach town in the south. I was very proud of my mom and my aunt. They're both in their 60s and they tried paragliding from about 1500 meters down Amazing. to the beach. Yeah, I was so proud. And then we went to uh, Antalya for a day where there's a nice. bunch of interesting aircraft, by the way. You know that mm. Aeroflot and all Russian airlines are just funneling people into Turkey. Yeah, it's, and of course, I mean, that, that brings us quite nicely onto there was big drama in the Russian aviation world because did you see that aircraft? This was a passenger 
A320 that was attempting to divert elsewhere when it had run out of fuel and it was forced to land in a field about 175 kilometers or so west of the of the nearest city all of this stems from a hydraulic failure that the aircraft had anyway the the, the airplane is about to run out of fuel so the flight crew identify a field and land this russian a320 everyone evacuates everyone remains completely uninjured it is an extraordinary remarkable incident yeah. but of course it is the first real suggestion maybe a sign of those sanctions biting because of course russia is on the receiving end of very 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 harsh aviation related sanctions even hitting them from even harsher sorry to interrupt but even harsher yeah. than iran right from exactly. what i understand so it is it is the most extreme uh, package of sanctions as they refer to them from the EU, uh, but also from the US. And the impact that it has on aviation spare parts and on aviation maintenance means that Russian airlines, uh, which operate a whole wide variety of European and American planes from Airbus and Boeing, they're unable to obtain those spares. And many in the beginning of the war uh, with Ukraine were predicting that Russian airliners will simply be unable to fly. I mean, they've been flying for quite a while and things have yeah. been have been pretty fine. But this maybe, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was the first suggestion of, are these aircraft in need of maintenance? And a hydraulic failure is leading now to, you've got passenger jets landing in fields, something quite unprecedented. It was an amazing landing. It looked so smooth and everyone made it. So that's the important thing. And just yeah. going back to, you know, taxiing around Antalya Airport, you see Aeroflot 777, 737s, A321s yeah. flying from every city in Russia. So they are using these planes. In Istanbul, I saw like four or five Aeroflot planes on the ground at the same time. So they're not really resting their fleet, even though they don't have spare parts, they don't have yeah. the maintenance they need. They are flying them as much as they can. So right now, there's still a lot of capacity to the places where Russians can fly. And Turkish, oh my God, have you seen that they pulled out almost all their seats from their a few normal 777s, left one row, I think, of business, maybe none, and put a full-on dense economy class configuration without entertainment, the densest type they have. I think it's approaching 500 seats on a 777 that they're shuttling back and forth between Moscow, St. Petersburg, a few other I Russian cities. This. this was unbelievable. The, yeah. I, at first, I couldn't understand what it was for, but it's so it's for those flights to certain Russian destinations. It's used only on Russian flights, mainly right. to southern Turkey. So, I mean, there's some airports like we flew into Dalaman, a pretty small airport definitely doesn't get many wide bodies and then you have multiple daily turkish triple sevens flying to russia so turkey said kaching the whole situation is very fascinating moving away from that amazing trip and in the lounge as we were leaving a kuwaiti listener came up to me the first person i've ever heard in person say they love the podcast so i was i was just so no. excited yeah, that's cool. It was it that's was cool. so so cool. That's not bad for two episodes in. No, I don't know if this is going to be the third, but that's that that's cool. Okay, this is something that I thought of earlier in the week, and I wanted to ask you, given that you're in the middle of your travels anyway, when you are flying purely for leisure, which I know you don't often do, but you had just done with your family, are you taking your laptop with you? What it, is, does your bag look like in terms of devices? 
because this is something that I mean, even in the summer that we just had now, when I was traveling with my mum and sister, even if the trip was only for a few days, it just felt like I couldn't leave the laptop. And then there was a few trips where I thought, no, I can. It's seven yeah. to two hours. It's purely yeah. leisure. It's over a weekend. Let go. Well, I like the philosophy of letting go, but I just feel like you can't working online or being self-employed or broadcasting or podcasting, whatever you do. I, I have to bring it. I bring a microphone. I bring big headphones. My suitcase is just filled and uh, security hates me for it. There's always some device that's hidden somewhere, a Kindle or a, or a tablet. I it, never know it, if you have to take the Kindle out. I mean, some yeah. airports say yes, some airports say no. I take it out. They tell me, put it back in. You know, you know what I love? This trip, both in my origin and my connecting city from Turkey, I had one of those brand new scanners where you don't have to take out your liquids. You don't have to take out oh, any electronics. So good. I am excited for the future when it comes to that. And I think it's also a bit of a safety benefit, right? Because when you don't have to even open your bag, no one's going to go snooping in your bag like we saw in Miami this summer, right? Or when when did the TSA start stealing people's stuff? Of course, last episode, we were speaking about the way in which security, you know, plays out and the risks for passengers in terms of the, the interactions can often not be very nice, but also the risks with your belongings and then being handled and either the passenger forgetting or at worst case scenario, having something stolen. So we published that. Then literally over the weekend, CCTV footage is released from Miami airport showing the TSA, who is the organization in the US, to the listeners that don't know that, that are responsible for the security across the air transport network, across airports around the United States. It shows personnel seeing bags come through the scanners far earlier than the passengers who are stuck in a queue behind waiting to be able to pass through one at a time. Meanwhile, their bags are sitting there and these personnel are going over and literally helping themselves. Jewelry, money, watches, that they're just quickly going into bags and taking things. It is horrible. It that is, gives it me confirms. goosebumps because it's literally, they are security. They are there yeah. to take yeah. care of everyone's well-being and safety, not to steal stuff. And you know, in the US, this was a red flag because they always tell you, you need to be the one to push your bag into the scanner. That's what I'm used right. to every time push your bag. No, you need to stay here until your bag goes in. So I guess there's a reason that precaution exists. That's not the same in Europe, is it? That's no. not the same in Europe because in Europe, they're always forcing me, sir, go through, sir, you can go through. And I, yeah. and I am always politely saying, that's fine, thank you, I'll just wait. And you know, let other people in front of me because I like to time my going through the scanner at the exact same time as the bag going through so we can be traveling in parallel rather than yeah. you know be separated for too long. But I found that across Europe, they actually get funny about this. It's almost as if it's an issue that you want to wait to go through, despite me not doing anything other than allowing others to go in front of me. I don't. So it's interesting that you say that in the US, they actually have been telling you, you have to be the one to push your bag through, which obviously didn't happen yeah. here. I tweeted out this, this video on, uh, on Twitter or on X, as it's now known. And the response was really big. And people were quote tweeting this saying, we knew this happened, this happened to me, this happened to my relative, this is why you should never be separated for too long from your bag and so on and so on. So this is an issue, but it's just so horrible to have this CCTV footage confirm yeah. our worst nightmare and our suspicions as well. It's Do you want to hear a horrifying anecdote I have? 
This just made me think of my little brother. He's in the US, he has an American girlfriend. He has been flying around a bit. You know, I try to advise as much as I can, but of course, when you're someone's sibling, you're less likely to want to listen exactly to what they're saying you should do, even if they're an aviation and flying expert. So he was flying Alaska from a wedding a few months ago, and he was basic economy. They made him check his backpack, his carry-on, which they often do in the U.S. when there's no space in the overhead lockers. So he checks his backpack, not thinking that there's any problem with his laptop, his wallet, with his IDs, his cash, his headphones, all his valuables. Wait, 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 bag. wait. He left, he left those valuables in the bag and checked it in, in a backpack. Well, no, you know, at the gate in the US, they, so they'll come up to you, they'll say, there's no more room, you have to check this. Right. And at many cities in the US, you know, I've experienced this too. Like in New York, people will be such... I don't want to say a bad word, but so annoying about it and so rude. So you'll be so like caught up in the moment and them yelling at you that you have to check it now. Now the flight is closing. So that's basically what happened to him. He didn't even have time to think, okay, do I need to grab anything out of here? So he checks his bag and of course the bag never shows up and everything was stolen. All <gasps> his valuables, his computer with all his schoolwork everything when was this this was earlier this year in i think oh he was word. flying from salt lake city or something horrifying we what's the response so... what did he do well he contacted alaska they said sorry we're not responsible for any valuables in your checked luggage which is it almost makes my skin crawl now because it's like they're the ones who forced him God. to check a backpack that's horrifying yeah, That's horrible. The reality is a lot of people will have been in a scenario before where they have to force, you know, gate check, as they call it. And again, it's very popular technique from the European low cost carriers as well. It's interesting. I a few weeks ago was at Airbus headquarters in Toulouse and they were discussing the number of airlines now, for example, Swiss, that have these short haul Airbus A320s, the likes that are in service all over the world. To put things into context, one Airbus A320 either lands or takes off every two and a half seconds. They are everywhere. So some of Swiss's A320s have had this refit done to the cabin where now they have the, they call them the XL bins, so the overhead lockers. And basically it means that every single passenger is able to put an entire piece of luggage, so either those cabin trolley bags or a backpack or so on, into the overhead lockers, even if the flight is absolutely at max capacity, and every bag can be accommodated because that's the bins how it have room be. for all. And that's and a lot of airlines are doing this. United has that on some of its aircraft and over in the US. I've noticed. I, I boarded a right. Delta or I've flown the Delta E320s a few times. The first time I boarded, I was like, what are these lockers? They're halfway down to the seat. They are massive. They are, they're they're halfway <laughs> down. You're right. It's it's so they are huge. But it means that all bags can be accommodated. Great. So how how they've been able to do that is the bags have to go in on their side as yeah. you, you probably know. So the bags are not going in like on their belly, if you like, with the wheels first. Instead, they're going in on their side. And it, as I say, there's room for everyone. So Airbus introduced me to the number of airlines that are flying this and I'm looking at the product and that's all great. A week later, I'm transiting at Heathrow and I'm flying Swiss to Zurich. And would you know, as luck would have it, the aircraft outside is one of the aircraft with the new XL bins check the reg. I then cross-check this with my friends at Swiss. They confirm that's the case. I think, wonderful. 
we are all kind of gathering at the gate because boarding was delayed as it very often is and then they start with the announcements and i say announcements but i i really mean threats because they start with the this is going to be a full flight you need to check in your bags i think this rhetoric has to change this aircraft can accommodate every bag so i'm the first person to board star alliance gold i'm in good position and they invite me for boarding and the moment i go her eyes go straight down to my cabin bag which is just a, a cabin size remoa and she says to me the flight's very busy, so you would be able to help us out if you can check this in. I said, actually, this aircraft that's outside is able to accommodate every single bag. If it was a full flight, which it's not, by the way, there are 10 empty seats. I'll check the system. <laughs> but if it was a full flight, every bag would be able to be accommodated. So you guys actually don't need to do any gate checking. And she looked at me and she was like, we're only allowing 30 bags on and everyone else is going to check their bags. And I said, but did you just hear what I said about the aircraft? She was like, uh, yeah, that's something you can take up with the with the airline. I said, no, no, I wasn't complaining. Oh she was like, if you can just yeah, forget it. I gave her my boarding pass, scanned it and boarded. And I just felt for, as I swear to you, as I was walking away, so I'd scanned, I'd beeped, I'd been, quote, boarded at the gate. And I, I went towards the escalators that take you down to the jet bridge to the plane. Within 10 seconds, I could hear an argument erupting from a Swiss couple behind me who she had told, nope, you're not taking any of this on. And they were like, what? The sad part is the whole aircraft was basically half empty in terms of the, the cabin bags, sorry, the cabin space on board where wow. by the time we had departed, everyone could have taken their bags on. But because of the ground handling agents and that lack of communication. So, of course, I had fed back all of this to Swiss and also to Airbus. And they were saying, yeah, it's something that they now have to address. They've created a new issue and uh, they've solved a problem. But changing the way in which aviation and air travel works is just going to take probably another 10 years. So we still have to deal with the whole, don't bring it on board. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think that having to gate check your bag is one of the worst experiences yeah. when it comes to travel because everything you have in your carry-on are things you have chosen. Okay, unless you're not traveling with a checked bag, but everything yeah. in your carry-on is something you've chosen that you need on board. Forget about if you have a connecting itinerary and it gets checked all the way to your final destination. If you are traveling specifically on a low-cost airline, they can be very, very, very strict with one piece of hand luggage per person. You know, we all know these airlines that do this. For years, and I, I'm only sharing this with you, the listeners now. And Alex is For whispering years. because it's a secret. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, like I said, we don't want this to shared too far and wide. For years, I would always uh, get around that rule by carrying extra large world duty-free carrier bags in my bag and then I would have an additional briefcase or a duffel bag or just, you know, something that I had acquired on the trip over the weekend. And at the gate, I would put all of my additional pieces of luggage, whether it was a duffel bag, as I say, or a briefcase or a laptop bag or so on, into the duty-free bag. And then I would board and go to the gate agent with my hand luggage suitcase, which is the one piece, and the duty-free bag full of everything else. But they don't know that. And they would go to say something, and then they would realize it's a duty-free bag. Mm. Of course, you are allowed to shop in airports. This is what airports are basically malls. 
And I would get on board. And the moment I would pass and they'd say, okay, and I'd, I'd start walking to the jet bridge, then I'd take everything back out, put my duffel bag over my shoulder again, take my laptop bag out and then board with about 10 pieces and so on <laughs> if, if I had that many. And, uh, and this worked for years, commuting to and from almost every weekend to and from Southern Europe, predominantly on low cost carriers. So it's something that I think I it still works about years ago it, it still works it yeah. definitely still works i started doing I it after this episode but yeah i started doing it in 2016 i think after after you told me about it also if you don't have a bag i just ask for a bag sometimes they give it for free or you can buy one very cheaply and you yeah. sometimes what i do if the bag is really full i'll buy like some like a box of chocolates or something to put at the very top and then below it is just all my random junk. <laughs> so you're actually worried that they are inspecting the contents of that bag. I was never worried. I just held it closed. I wasn't mm. justifying. I promise there's chocolates in here. <laughs> I, I would go to the, if I, if I lost that duty-free bag in the, you know, the mix of traveling, I would go and, as you say, buy a bottle of water and say, can I have the largest bag that you have, please? I think it's becoming a bit more difficult. You know, as how the whole carrier bag thing is becoming a bit taboo everywhere, of course, in the name of sustainability. Mm. These bags are, are shrinking if they do have any bags not only are you paying for them but they're smaller and then of course you've got the paper bags and i'm thinking the paper bags can't hold the weight of the duffel bag yeah. so uh yeah this is what i'm saying over the last 10 years it worked really well but definitely if, if i was in this scenario now it's getting a little bit more difficult yeah so back to your flight how was heathrow other than the annoying people at the gate or the people who just weren't up to date on the aircraft outside how was the rest of the experience? Because last week I posted a video where I said Heathrow is the worst airport in Europe, in my opinion. And many people agreed. I don't think it's the I don't think it's the worst airport. I don't think it's the worst airport in Europe. For me, it's the worst major airport. And I can tell you why, but if you want, or we can hear you talk first. But I I have a long list of reasons that I think it is. <laughs> I don't, I'll, I'll keep mine brief, okay? I think when Heathrow works well, it works well, and I can get through Terminal 5 and Terminal 4, which are the terminals that I travel through the most at Heathrow, really quickly. And when it works well, it doesn't get enough credit for how smooth it can be in terms of being, like in Terminal 5, being light and airy and doing maybe the self-service check-in or if you've got status, going to the first wing and, you know, checking in really quickly and good retail options, solid F&B in terms of dining, and then making a way to the gates. Don't love the fact that there's, you know, satellite terminals and the, the monorail. I haven't taken the monorail that runs between terminals in years now because I, I do the underground walkways, which is fantastic. Getting a sweat uh, on. Nice. No, it's fine. I like the fact that I'm in my own space. It's super quiet. It's cool down there. Unlike the, the warm airport, it's not stuffy. I'm a very, very fast walker, as you know, anyways. So I tend to arrive before even that train does. So Heathrow, when it works well, it works well. When it doesn't work well, it is a mm, show completely. Yeah. And as uh, the Brits and say, as the most common thing I've heard about Heathrow and British Airways is it's a disgrace. That's the word I hear all the time. Uh, and when and, it goes wrong, it is. Yeah, well, exactly. Gone, why do you hate it? Well, what's well okay. The, what's I, the I agree that when it goes right, it's actually a nice airport. I, I think Heathrow has some of the best stores in the world. I love that there are pharmacies everywhere. You can buy stuff at Boots. You can buy Pret. There's all types of nice, easy-to-go things that you don't find at many other airports. 
But I just think the big problem is how often things don't go right. Things go wrong at all airports. Paris Charles de Gaulle is notoriously pretty horrible. Frankfurt has its problems. But for me, it's just that the frequency with which things go wrong at Heathrow is far too much. And especially if you're connecting there, which I think many people who originate in the UK miss, that's when you're even more prone to have issues because suddenly you have two Heathrow flights rather than yeah. one. I would never connect there. That's yeah. just my rule. I wouldn't connect at Heathrow. And as someone who doesn't live in the UK, <laughs> all I'm doing is connecting at Heathrow. Yeah. For example, the most common thing I think most people have flown to and from Heathrow will know is slot delays, which really doesn't happen at other European airports where boarding will be five minutes late. Everyone's on the plane. It okay, does. Our next takeoff get the slot, slot is delays. in 45 you minutes. Get <laughs> you get the slot delays at other European airports. If France dominates the rest of Europe's slot delays because of because French of their air ATC. traffic controls. But exactly. isn't that excluding French flights? Isn't that the whole problem? That the French yeah, ATC allows what? French flights? Exactly. So the, the actually Michael O'Leary, the very outspoken CEO of Ryanair, he is actively lobbying and applying pressure to the European Commission to say that it's just not fair that when French air traffic controllers strike, you best believe that the flights that are to and from France are almost always fine. But the flights that overfly France, well... May the odds be ever in your favor, <laughs> yeah. because when those guys are on strike, which is very often, it can cause a lot of disruption as we've both been on the receiving end of. Yes. So back to Heathrow, <laughs> there is slots that affect flights to and from London, not overflying London. There are, of course, all types of mechanical issues. So just to give some context, the past like six trips I've had through Heathrow, every single time there has been either a 30 to one hour wait, 30 minute, not 30 hour, 30 minute to one hour wait for a gate because either there's an aircraft that's late pushing back or there's some issue with the jetway. So we've had to sit on the ground and wait for ages. That will not happen at airports where they have more bus gates. I'm not saying I love bus gates, but in Frankfurt, for example, they'll send you to a bus gate if that's the case. Wait, wait, but okay, you are the American on the podcast, right? The, I the hate very busting. idea, the <laughs> very, the very idea of arriving and the pilot announcing, we can't park at the moment, we can't reach our stand because it's unavailable because of an aircraft in the way. That's that's a U.S. thing. Yeah, I mean, because these places don't have more bus gates. So in the U.S., bus gates are almost non-existent, which I don't understand because I don't want to be sitting for ages waiting for a gate when you can just take a bus, although buses aren't great. But this is just, it's just these cumulative problems. So then mm. several times, I think twice in the last year, I've had to wait over an hour for my checked bag, even if it has a priority tag. Or a few weeks ago, I was flying through London. There was one immigration officer and all the fast gates were closed. So one person you can what terminal? imagine. What terminal was that? Because you that you've was got an American three so toward the evening. So it was you, you can know, use them at the e-gates right as an american and i have a swedish passport which also works at the e-gates of course yeah right. so it's they love to close the e-gates as you've told me many yeah. times as well of yeah. course in 2021 i think i was stuck when there was a meltdown of the e-gates and they told us when we landed on british airways from madrid that we would be waiting four hours on the aircraft because the terminal was too congested it's just always these oh, types wow. of things that have never happened to me anywhere else but it seems to happen every time i'm at heathrow like sure there might be 
a delay in one of these areas in Paris now and then. And Paris is a nightmare in many other ways, getting between terminals. I avoid but, it entirely. Yeah, but getting between terminals at Heathrow is not a very joyous I thing either. That, yeah. 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 So it's, um, I mean, I want to ask you, and, and we said that the podcast is also, you know, therapy. Uh, therapy <laughs> yeah, you can tell. So I want to ask you, do you think that this Heathrow trauma, do you think it comes from a place of, or related to the fact that were you not, if I remember correctly, stuck and stranded between <laughs> glass doors at well, Heathrow Airport one time. Yeah, so that was just another thing to add to the list. I was the last to get off an aircraft one time. I was chatting with the crew. I was I didn't wait a long time. I was yeah. like, okay, that minutes. means it was your fault. It was yeah. like two okay, minutes after going. the last person left. And then I get off, there's not a person in sight. And I'm stuck between the door closes behind me to the jetway. And I'm in this little area with no one else in sight. And I'm like, shouldn't boarding be starting soon for this flight? I was there. I think I was there for 10, 15 minutes trying to figure out it's how to get Between glass doors, like in a holding, yeah, in a, in exactly. a holding pen but between this, the glass doors. I didn't mention this because I don't blame Heathrow for that. Of course, that can happen anywhere. I was surprised yeah. that no one found a stranded passenger <laughs> for 15 minutes at one of the world's busiest airports. But See, that was that's where point. I take the, I think, I think they knew you were there. Okay, I think they <laughs> so were like, my we videos. got him, we yeah. got him, we got that YouTuber, he's just in between those glass doors at, at, at B24, and they were high-fiving each other. Like, activate the sprinkler system. Exactly. Yeah. No, but, so I mean, so, I mean that was, was not you know, the start of my issues with Heathrow. Growing up, there were always slot issues, but there's so many mm -hmm. things, so many weights, so many problems. I would much rather transfer through some of the other controversial airports out there any day over over dealing with the potential for issues at Heathrow. So that's my range. Just that I've said it a hundred times already over the last three episodes, but but Frankfurt for me just has that spot. I mean, it's the only place where I, you know, the last kind of at least between 2020 and 2022, where, you know, with the mask mandates and wearing a mask, you cannot imagine what I was muttering out loud because nobody can see you speaking about, God, I hate this airport. God, this airport is awful. Look at this low ceiling. Why does it yeah. smell of hot dogs? And, and on and on and on. It's uh, That's why it's, I now uh, work with their VIP services, because then you can skip that. But, I saw um, that. I saw that. I saw but that. That's no, cool. I just have to say, I have flown through Frankfurt. It's my second mo... Wait, I'm just checking my flight records. Yeah, it's my second most used airport in the world besides Gothenburg, where I grew up. Not going to bring up that trauma again. 96 yeah, flights to Frankfurt. Let me tell you, I have never had to wait for a gate. I have never had any of these issues with there's only one person in immigration and it takes two hours. I've never not been off, let off the aircraft due to waits in the terminal. Try being, try being a British passport holder after Brexit and then talk to me about European immigration. I'm not going to feel sorry word. for you about <laughs> Brexit. My, what? Well, hello. Most of the claim... country didn't vote for that rubbish. Nope, we will not own it, okay? It was half of the country or less than half of the country. No, more than half of the country that had voted for this disaster of an idea. And it's controversial. Yeah. And I get that. It was a UK decision. So they just have to deal with it. 
with it, but what a mess. And you, you can't imagine how any flights that I'm on that are going to the UK from Europe. And of course, that means it involves the immigration uh, that is, you know, other passports. And it can be evening. The only flights remaining are those going to London. Everyone is in the other yeah. passports queue as the UK voted for, of course. And the, every conversation in that queue will mutter Brexit at least once. Yeah. I mean, everyone is exchanging looks because you can almost guarantee that most of the people in that queue, overwhelming majority of people in that queue, they wouldn't have voted for that rubbish. Exactly. So the ones who actually leave horrible. the country didn't vote for it. Exactly. <laughs> so, I yeah, mean, I okay, feel really bad speaking... for, for everyone. Okay. And going a little further afield, in fact, going down under, I have a brief update to what we spoke about last week in the Australia saga. So the update is that Qantas, who of course are at the heart of all the controversial issues, kind of scandal in Australia to do with keeping foreign airlines out and the, the closeness of the former CEO and the government and the decision to lay off loads of workers. Well, the High Court of Australia has upheld a decision that ultimately decides that Qantas were unlawful and breaking the law in their decision to fire baggage handlers and cleaners across airports in Australia. The High Court, of course, was the, the highest court of the land it could have been escalated to. And they basically accused Qantas of keeping those staff members out of the company because had they have come back, they would have taken industrial action and that would have been costly for Qantas. So this is a win for the staff members. It's incredibly yeah. significant. And that's just adding to the string of the scandals. We've had uh, the Qatar Airways CEO, Akbar al-Bakr, where he's spoken for the first time on the Australia situation, on how Australia were trying to keep out foreign airlines, including Qatar. He said it was, quote, very unfair. He did a CNN interview on this. He said that they had a legitimate request. It wasn't granted, especially at a time when Qatar was so supportive of Australia. And now there is going to be a Senate inquiry, and that is the, going to look at everything that Qantas is surrounded by and shrouded in, in terms of scandal that's going ahead for next week and the slight twist on that is apparently Alan Joyce the CEO is not in the country and so Australia is having to discuss how he actually could be summoned and forced to appear uh, because he apparently is not in conversation about that at the moment so does, it's all still happening does apparently. anyone know where he is do we need one of those like Twitter accounts that tracks him like they track Elon Musk do you know that happens every time one of the UK cabinet ministers is about to get fired? So it happened with the one of the former home secretaries, Priti Patel. Goodness, she's not a nice woman, just my opinion. <laughs> and it happened, uh, people were tracking her flight back because the, the country knew that the prime minister at the time, Theresa May, was about to fire her. So flight radar was going crazy. The whole world were, were watching this flight that didn't have Wi-Fi uh, because you could tell that the aircraft she was on, she didn't have Wi-Fi. So everyone was thinking, oh my goodness, when she lands, she's getting sacked by the prime minister. And it happened again last year when the chancellor at the time, who was the chancellor for five minutes of the UK, Kwasi Kwarteng, when he crashed the UK market, made everyone's mortgages uh, double or triple, uh, the pound fell to its lowest level in recent modern history. And he was on his way back from the US and everyone was tracking this A380 British Airways plane. And I actually had to do an interview after as to why is it that the UK loves nothing more than to track a flight of an incoming 
cabinet minister set to be fired because it's now a trend. Oh, God. This kind of nicely brings us into our next topic where we're going to discuss because it, you made me think of something entirely not political, but the fact that everyone has been tracking Taylor Swift's private jet and she is apparently the US celebrity who uses her private jet the most. So it's like an insane amount of usage. Granted, she doesn't really talk that much about the environment and sustainability, but people are very quick to notice when someone is doing something that is very unsustainable, like just using their jet to fly everywhere. And nowadays it's pretty easy to track anyone. So that just adds another interesting layer to being a public figure. Then of course we have- I airlines. actually had no idea that they, people were tracking Taylor Swift's. Uh, I mean, of we course, there's more people who care about Twitter Taylor feeds. Swift than any British politician, probably. You're right. No, 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 100%. I just didn't know. I didn't know that's the thing. So she so she doesn't use VistaJet or NetJets. She's, no, she's she has her, her own. Actually, I think she has what two. What does she have? Oh, I'm not sure. Because she has two. So she has her old one, which she uses as a decoy many times. So she'll sometimes she'll have a someone who looks like her step off the first one. All the media leaves, the helicopter leaves, and then she gets off the next one maybe at another airport in the same city or or whatever no. it is it's such a crazy system and she's just flying everyone around she lets her friends borrow her jet so her, i think it was something like her jet had taken almost 300 flights last year alone for one person's private jet crazy crazy mm. so that brings us to the airlines and what they are trying of course they're flying a lot more than taylor swift but they also have a lot more passengers on board They've been getting in trouble lately for trying to make it seem like they are pushing towards sustainability and flying is becoming so much more sustainable when in fact it's mostly a bunch of greenwashing, right? Yeah, and the greenwashing is is something that specifically European countries are hitting airlines with. In some cases, they're even facing legal action because as we know that aviation must decarbonize and has this journey towards being able to fly more sustainably, and we will definitely dive into that topic on one of the episodes to have a look at if it's even achievable. In the meantime, you have airlines like Ryanair, like Lufthansa. Lufthansa were publishing these advertisements of their new, quote, green fares, and they were showing um, the earth, in the palm of hands and how much you know they they care and this is why this is a green choice if you buy a green fare what's well, funny lufthansa of course is the national airline of germany and a huge european airline those advertisements the uk's advertising regulator were having none of it and they hit lufthansa with a fine and they sanctioned them by removing all of the ads and they said that the ads can't be shown anywhere else in the UK again because they said it was misleading. They said it was greenwashing. Since that happened, it's happened with Ryanair. It's happened with Etihad. I mean, you know, Dan, because and you've just I know you've recently flown Etihad. Etihad went through this phase over the last 12 months where it thought, right, we're not Qatar Airways because we're not global. We're not Emirates just down the road because we're definitely not as huge and as prominent as, as their existence. We are not Oman and Kuwait who can often be a little bit confused as airlines in terms of exactly what they are. We were big. We're now not anymore. We had Nicole Kidman. She's now gone. The <laughs> oh, residence no, was her. outrageous, but we're somehow flying. Anyway, Etihad decide, aha, our niche is going to be we're going to be green just because we say so. So they renamed the Dreamliner the Green Liner. They they <laughs> splashed 50 shades of green across different branding of aircraft and so on. And again, the UK aviation regulator for 
sorry, the UK advertising regulator was having none of it. I mean, did you see, have you been able to see this as clear as I have in terms of how it had just how it changed take on this green persona? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was kind of interesting because during that period, Etihad has been having, they've just had a bit of a resurgence, but they have been confused, as you said. So I've just been like, oh, what are they doing now? Now they've brought back the E380, a bunch of more exciting things. So now they've got more of my attention. They're also launching new routes, many new routes, actually, for the first time in many years. So Etihad has totally changed course again from being the small sustainable airline <laughs> that they were trying to but be. They, but when were they were the small sustainable airline for five minutes? Yeah, right? because and this no was one the, thought this of them was a way. very no, and and they hadn't actually done anything. So I really looked into this. Have they invested in sustainable aviation fuel in any significant way or for a variety of passenger flights? No. Had they purchased a forward purchase agreement for sustainable aviation fuel in the few places that is produced globally? No. Had they decided to take new initiatives that are able to ensure that they are, their aircraft are going to be reducing emissions in any significant way? You get the idea. No. So it was just a greenwashing deal. And don't take my words for it. Take the advertising regulator. Yeah. They had said that Etihad had no significant measures or mitigations in order to reduce the impact of flying on the environment. And therefore, they didn't understand why they thought they could get away with becoming this green, visually green airline to attract, for example, UK consumers as if it's somehow a better choice. And I think as more airlines try to prove they're doing something, we are going to see more of this, more airlines under fire for, for actually being told, you're not really doing anything. You're just yeah. pretending you are. And and that's not cool for anyone. That, that, you know, that doesn't help. No. Anyone. Can I just say, or can I ask, have you seen United's initiative? It's hilarious because it's so unserious. I'm just publishing a review of United today, so it's going to be in it. I just texted you the link. They introduced a chief trash officer who's actually Oscar the Grouch. So they have a whole website dedicated to him. Basically, they write, we're investing in a future where planes can be fueled by things like waste. So we hired an expert. And then there's a picture of Oscar the Grouch. They put his email on the website, chief.trashofficer@united.com. It's kind of funny because it goes past this regulatory advertising issue by making it such an unserious thing. And they're like, we hired an expert, obviously not an expert, to try to show they're doing something in a very non-committal, unserious way. Yeah, yeah and it's not, the reality is, is that when, when airlines are taking measures that matter and you can clearly say, you know, this flight, it's now going to have reduced emissions in a significant way. For example, it will have 80% fewer emissions because of X, Y, Z. At that point, they won't need to bother with this rubbish because just by having a solid, and when I say they won't need to bother with this rubbish, they won't need to bother with having to create these silly initiatives that, that don't mean much. They yeah. will be able to state as fact, here's what we've done. And now you no longer have to feel bad. And we will get there. And as I say, we'll take a deeper dive into the world of, of if sustainable air travel is even an achievable thing, which thankfully, in a nutshell, eventually it will be. Yeah. But, uh, one yeah, thing to just, say... It seems a, a bit desperate when they do this. Yeah. For a future episode also, for me, one of the most interesting discussion points when it comes to sustainability, because I know it can seem a bit hopeless or dreary or whatever it is, is low-cost airlines versus full-service airlines. So they're both arguing arguing with each other. Low-cost airlines are saying, we're the most sustainable way of flying. We fit the most people into a plane. 
we get them where they need to go. Meanwhile, full-service airlines are saying low-cost airlines are making travel too cheap and polluting mm -hmm. by making more people fly. So that's a really interesting discussion we'll have to save for a future episode because I think we need to get to some listener questions. Yes, let's get to the questions. Okay, so this question is from Khalid. He says, why are there no flights from Heathrow or Sydney during the night? Surely, if these are hub airports, it should be open 24 hours like other hubs around the world. So this is quite an easy question to yeah. answer. Uh, I'll take it. So the the quick answer is that they have nighttime curfews and they're very, very strict. And the nighttime curfews are in place to prevent noise pollution, to allow the local residents to sleep. Heathrow, at least Heathrow I'll speak about, doesn't actually close. A handful of aircraft still arrive but airlines are prevented from actively scheduling flights that depart or arrive during the night. The earliest arrival at Heathrow that's a scheduled arrival tends to come from the Far East and it's still in the hour of 4am. And if you think that the delayed departures might not leave until after 11, closer to midnight, that, that's only about four hours with no scheduled departure and arrivals. So it just gives the nearby residents a bit of a break. One thing about this, Dan, that I want to let you know about is that a few years ago, there were over 87,000 noise complaints for Heathrow Airport over the course of 12 months. But 40,000 of them were from the same 10 people. No. So you had 10 people successfully registering 50% of all noise complaints of Heathrow wow. Airport. Over the course sense. of 12 months. You live close to an airport. You knew you were renting or buying close to an airport. So what is there to this complain about? The debate. You know it's happening. This is always the debate. This is always the debate. Who was there first? I mean, it's that kind of chicken egg. But also, it's always interesting. Whenever Heathrow noise complaints is in the news, you always have camera crews and reporters go down and they'll ask a, 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 a person who lives nearby, they'll doorstep them and they'll say, what's the impact on all this flight noise? And they'll show something like a gas guzzling A340, you know, on minimums ready to, to arrive. And of course, A340s are extremely loud, but they're barely flying anywhere anymore. But of course, that's what gets the, uh, the hit. And the person will say, Oh, I, I can't deal with the noise, you know, and I don't want to diminish, by the way, the impact of noise pollution, but they will say that they, they can't deal with the noise and it's really disruptive. And then almost always the reporter will say, where do you work? And they'll say, oh, um, a cargo at the airport or <laughs> in, in the catering facility also at the airport. Yeah. Or, oh, down near air traffic control at the airport. So... It, it, it's always, Ma. it happens every time. The airport is the employer, but at the same time, they're oh actively campaigning to have this airport closed. So they lose hours, their so. job, basically. I, I don't understand. It, it, every single time it's in the news, it happens. You can almost guarantee it. It's all yeah. over YouTube. Let's well, go to I, the second Yeah, question. okay. I, I mean, I just want to say I've lived in many loud places. Like in college, I lived on a crazy loud street in San Francisco with homeless people shouting through the night with trams going by. I mean, you know where you live. You just have to wear earplugs. I would love to live close to Heathrow to see those planes every day, to be close because it's convenient. Well, not necessarily close to Heathrow, actually, but an airport. You can answer me yeah. this. You can answer me this. This is slightly off topic, but it's related. Right. You're, you're, you are essentially half New Yorker. Yeah. Okay. What is the deal with the horns in the cars at night? Why? 
<laughs> you you mean in the U.S. or? Yeah, I mean in New York. Well, it's all yeah. Okay, it is crazy in New York because you'll wake up at any time of the night and there's sirens and there's cars honking and of course people yelling the craziest things through the night. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's just a cultural thing. New Yorkers are loud. People don't care about making noise. The ambulances. Why don't they flash instead? Trucks, like the, the, yeah. The decibels on those. It's like twice the level of Europe, but. That, you know, the honking is everywhere. If you go to India, yeah. it's even more constant. It's all over the world. I just think in Europe, people are very respectful of nighttime. So there it's really like, now it's 8 right. p.m. Everyone's going to be quiet. So I'm in the Middle East also. I feel like people honk now and then. Yeah. So, okay, um, next okay. question. Question two. This is from Rabil. He says, hi, Dan and Alex. I wanted to know if either of you have had any idols or inspirational figures in aviation or elsewhere that have encouraged you into your journey in aviation so far? Oh, Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> what, on the Emirates, Emirates class. <laughs> Can we have some context, please, for listeners that might not understand why you're saying Oscar yeah. Award winning actress Jennifer Aniston? Did she? I don't think she's an Oscar Award winner, right? She is in my eyes. Yeah, she's amazing. Anyway, no. Okay, my, this is really my favorite airline ad of all time. When she, I think, when did that come out? Like 2014, 15? You know, it's removed from YouTube and there's like a what? sketchy version of it now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So basically for anyone who doesn't know, Emirates hired Jennifer Aniston, I think for $5 million, right? To be in an ad campaign for their A380s. She was flying first class. And the whole joke was that she was having a nightmare that she was flying a US airline and then she wakes up on Emirates. So it's super in your face. That was at the time when U.S. airlines and Middle Eastern airlines were beefing. The U.S. carriers were constantly trying to stop Middle Eastern airlines from expanding. So it was just such a funny and satisfying. You know what? Act. You know what? Let's play a clip of it. Let's play just okay. a short clip of it. Hi, I'm looking for the shower. There are no showers here, ma'am. Well, aren't I going to look really silly dressed like this in the lounge? There's no lounge here, ma'am. But what well, we do have hot towels and a bag of peanuts. You have showers. Emirates planes have showers and lounges. Uh, this isn't an Emirates plane, ma'am. No, no, no. There's no shower? No. And you have no, no lounge? Yeah. Why are you laughing like that? You're killing me. <laughs> I, I love it. it. I think it perfectly captured, especially what happens when Americans or US-based travelers fly golf carriers yes. because that's i tend to find they tend to be the most excited like americans get in touch with me and say you know based in doha that's where like the aircraft are on another level and blah 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 and, you know but so i also find it's, it's so uh, funny the things they react to like it's never the things i react to like wow the cabin crew kneeled to serve me my welcome drink like those sort of fine things are just like wow they had towels in the bathrooms or like the most basic things like wow they actually have soap <laughs> <laughs> and dan offends the entire united states america i love you <laughs> i'm gonna move to the u.s one day and i'm not gonna be welcome. okay Okay. Uh, okay. Let's, no, seriously. Uh, you didn't obviously, answer the question. I know. You didn't ask I know, the question. I know. Right. Well, God. look, the interest in planes doesn't come from a specific person. I will say the interest in starting a YouTube channel came from people who I'm sure no one listening will. Okay, I'm not going to roast these people because I admired them, but there were a few early, early aviation YouTubers back when I started my channel in 2009 who really inspired me to 
pursue my interest more and to start a YouTube channel. They were called like John 5700, Roald Griffin, I think. Yeah, you can Google these people. They had really OG flight simulation videos and that really inspired 11 That's or 12-year-old Dan. That's sweet. For me, I remember being eight years old and my mum coming into my room and handing me Richard Branson's short read book. Uh, it was only about 100 pages. Just as you do with any eight-year-old. Well, she knew that I was an avid reader and was obsessed with aviation. And she handed me Richard Branson's book. And as I say, it was an easy read, 100 pages. And it was called Screw It, Let's Do It. By the way, I still highly recommend this book even today. And she said to me, I think you're really going to like this. And of course, I loved it because Richard Branson was the first person that I can remember reading and thinking, oh my word, the way he speaks about his passion for aviation was exactly what I had felt. And he had said that it was something that just got in your veins and, and this this desire for flight and all things air travel and the whole ecosystem. And my eyes were huge reading this and I was only eight. Wow. And so I put it in my school bag and took it to school. And we had this like planned reading hour, let's say. And I took out the book and was reading along with the rest of my classmates. And the teacher comes over, looks at the book and she was like, this is an adult read because it has the S word in it. <sighs> So she confiscated it. She Whoa. confiscated British entrepreneur Richard Branson's book, who was inspiring me at eight years old of his love for commercial aviation and how he started Virgin Atlantic because she was too small minded to realize that my mind was going crazy reading this. And it was, you know, opening my eyes to this to this world that I knew I already loved. I mean, what a poor move on yeah. her part. Anyway, I got the book back at the end of the day. We laughed about it at home, how it was confiscated. Continued reading it. So I'm always grateful that my mum had given me that book oh. at eight years old because it was definitely a defining moment for me with Richard Branson's book. And I actually told, I got to tell Richard Branson this story when I met him in 2017. Okay, yeah, flex. <laughs> one of the Eshers. I feel like Richard is Branson nice is the type of person... If you, you know, had sent him a message about this, sent him a letter, I guess, in those days, he's the type of person who would have come to your school, into your classroom, like lifted you up and carried you out of the classroom. I'm going to save you, little boy. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, and we would have both said the S word because it was <laughs> yeah. so controversial for the teacher. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah now, so that's I think we have let's time for to... one last question. Yeah, let's do it. This says, okay, with many airlines now using smaller aircraft on longer routes, and this, this person is Aaron, he's put, uh, for example, I've just flown a TAP Air Portugal A321 long range across the Atlantic my first time. Would both of you always prefer a larger aircraft for long haul routes or a smaller aircraft can be just as comfortable? Thank you. <laughs> My, my brain is going triggered, triggered, Gothenburg, triggered, A321, that Neo LR is made Excuse for cities me, like Gothenburg, Mar Gothenburg is banned from episode three <laughs> because know. of the number of times it was mentioned in episode two. Yeah, we're so not going to answer the question that. without the G word. <laughs> okay, so let's use another example, like uh, what's another secondary city? I can't think of any. Cause when Gothenburg he's asking, what would you prefer? Yeah. What would you prefer? I like, mean, you know, would you, are you fine for either or what? If I, if I could fly direct, I would choose a narrow body. But if I had to connect, of mm. course, I would try to get a wide body instead. I would never choose to mm. connect to a narrow body flight if possible. Mm. I would I would always try for the largest aircraft on the route, depending on product. But I think 
even if you had to product for a minute no maybe the direct option well the, the narrow body would have to have a the, the reality is this wide body aircraft tend to be much more comfortable in all cabin classes okay yeah. that's why people love the a380 because you probably can't have a more comfortable economy class experience than on an airbus a380 that's the super jumbo from airbus the largest commercial aircraft in the skies so my quick answer is that i think usually when it comes to aircraft in all cabin classes you know the larger the better but can i actually bring up one exception that, if you're going to yeah. fly premium economy, I think a narrow body might actually be better because, for example, SAS, they have a 2-2 configuration in premium economy, which is basically equivalent to U.S. first class. You know, most airlines, a business class on their shorter range flights, that's mm. a lot better than actually that's going to be a wider seat than you find on many wide bodies. For example, most airlines on E350s, although the aircraft is 333, while an A320 is 3-3, they will have two seats by the windows, four seats in the middle, and two seats by the other windows in premium economy. So they're actually squeezing in much more seats than they do in premium economy on narrow bodies. So that's maybe the one it's exception. True. You have to... You had, the, the, trust me, there are more exceptions. And then, of course, you've got the airlines that put the premium economy on the upper deck of the A380 at the, at the rear, like British Airways, like yeah. really comfortable with the extra space that the upper deck of the A380 has. So it's difficult to answer but that was my brief uh, with that and with that i think we shall wrap up today's episode if you haven't already please either like follow or subscribe the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also if you're able to leave a review that'll be fantastic as it helps others find the podcast as we know so many new listeners have over the last week and that is down to you either subscribing sharing the links and and telling of course recommending the podcast to other people you know who may like aviation or who may like any of the types of things we discuss by the way don't forget if you do leave a review and you send us a screenshot of the review of your star rating and that you follow the podcast you'll be entered to win some really awesome prizes from all types of luxury flights so yeah don't forget about that send them to us on instagram as we always say please send us questions your thoughts on this episode wherever you want to reach out to us on social media on that note thank you so much for listening guys it's been great to spend this time with you and we shall see you next week on air bye bye see you later